Hi friends, welcome to the Bar of the Conference. I'm your host, Derek Scott III. Today's episode is with Reverend Katie Dawson. Katie is an elder in the Iowa Annual Conference. Over the last several years, she has served as a local church pastor, field coordinator for Imagine No Malaria, writer, and the list goes on. She is currently preparing to begin serving as assistant to Bishop Kenitha Bickham Sai on July 1st. She is married to Brandon and they have two cats. For me, Katie is another face of the future of the United Methodist Church. I found her story of growing up in the UMC so compelling and I'm inspired by her gifts for leadership, her passion for ministry and her theological clarity. I was energized by this conversation, and I think you will be as well. So grab those notebooks, that choice beverage, and let's listen to this episode with Katie Dawson. Reverend Katie Dawson, how are you doing today? I am doing lovely. Oh my gosh, Katie, thank you so much for joining me yeah. on Bar of the Conference. Um, I have watched your ministry from a distance for the last few years and have, um, I made this statement about uh, Shannon Klein uh, down in Texas, but I make the same uh, statement to you when I think about the future of the United Methodist Church, you're one of the faces. That, that comes to mind of individuals who seem to embody where I think we're headed and the kind of leadership we need mm. to be who I believe God is calling the United Methodist Church to be. And that is not to say that you are not already making your mark right now today, but as I think about just, you've got some runway ahead of you and mm. I think your experience will um, always bring, uh, allow you to bring something to the table. I just think, yeah, you are one of those people that I'm like, yeah, Katie Dawson, she's 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 doing something and it's really awesome. So Thank really you. excited to have you on the podcast. Um, you know, so much of this podcast is really the stories of individuals um, who are contributing to our future. Um, a lot of that's related to things that happen at General Conference and very uh, centered there, but we always bring our own stories with this to the floor. So yeah. I'd love to hear some of your story. Um, yeah. Your God's provenient grace in your life, um, bringing you to salvation and to you, the United Methodist Church and wherever that takes us. So I'd love to yeah. hear some of that. Well, so the really interesting thing about me is that both of my parents were United Methodists at some point in their life. So they both grew up, one in an EUB church and one in a Methodist church that then became United Methodist when they were like kids and teenagers. Mm -hmm. um, and so their families were very involved in church. And um, they, but like a lot of people in, in life, they kind of like, as they grew up and got married, like really didn't make that a huge part of their lives. And so I was born and I was kind of one of those um, Christmas and Easter Christians, but really more Christmas. Like um, we got together um, at my, my grandpa's and we always went to Christmas Eve services, like the whole clan. My mom's one of seven. And so then like all of us and all the grandkids and spouses like took up like three rows at the church. Uh, so that was like my primary Christian religious upbringing were, were those experiences. And I, I remember there was this distinctive moment. I was, um, I was probably like a sophomore in high school and my mom looked at me one day and she kind of gasped and she said, you haven't been confirmed yet. And <laughs> so I had this like awareness of, oh, there are these milestones you're supposed to meet along the journey. And, um, so we got involved in, uh, in a congregation, um, we went to the, at the time, I think it was one of the largest churches in the state of Iowa, St. Paul's United Methodist Church. And I think honestly that she took us there because um, we could kind of be a little anonymous, <laughs> and, you know, it's yeah. a big place. Yeah. And um, 
I just dove right in to youth ministry and I got involved in the youth group and we did a play and I preached the sunrise service and I went, we had at the time, um, youth annual conference. And so our youth pastor took me and a few other students and I got elected to be like on the, the youth council. And I was like the co-chair of our youth annual, like I was just like, I was sold. Like, I didn't even know I was missing it. And it was just like, boom, like, you're now a United Methodist leader and you're 16 years old. And um, so that was pretty amazing. That, that is, that's beautiful. And yeah. also, like, it, it's interesting to not even know what you've gotten yourself into. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't know any of these things existed. And all of a sudden, there I was, so... And so was your call to ministry pretty early on or? Oh, I ran away from my call to ministry. Um, so actually, so I preached the sunrise service. Um, Bishop Bruce O was my pastor. Yeah. Um, so he yeah. was, he was at St. Paul's at the time. And I remember he called me into my, into his office and he said, um, I think you should think about being a pastor someday. And I was like, I'm going to be a meteorologist. Like <laughs> I just, no sense of that whatsoever. Right. Um, I went to Simpson College, which is a great United Methodist related school and got really involved in religious life there. And again, I had chaplains who were like, you should be a minister someday. And I'm like, no, um, I went to uh, I went to seminary straight after college. Mm. But my intent was to come back to a small school like Simpson and be a professor of like ethics or religion mm. or something like that. Mm. Um, it took me until my third year in seminary before I took an ethics class because God knew there was something else happening. And so, um, but yeah, I, I like was on the path I needed to be, but I didn't realize where I was going. <laughs> if that makes any sense. <laughs> I hear so much in that, even some of my own journey of yeah. not, um, not, you know, I've done campus ministry for the better part of 20 years now mm -hmm. and, and uh, more than 20 years, um, but I never thought that I would be in it. And mm -hmm. even when I got into it, I never thought that I'd always be doing like that. It was going to be so much of my life. And yeah. yet I have found so much of my life um, walking through doors that God opened and mm. um, trying to be faithful in sort of these like really small ways and, and being present with what was in front of me. Um, and so I hear a lot of that in your story. I'm curious as you were growing up and even as you, you know, went through undergrad at Simpson and uh, I'm, I'm wondering were there parts of your formation that were so significant, they kind of still stick with you, sort of the oh, yeah. preaching, the sunrise service, um, and just the ways that Bishop O, he wasn't Bishop O back then, but right. the ways that Bishop O um, maybe spoke to you, spoke to that mm. calling. Look, were there, there, are there some markers along the way that are like, that wasn't just like a really cool moment, that was like this mm. God moment that's like s sitting with me for a while. Yeah. So I think um, one of those things I point to is how um, that particular congregation in their youth ministry had mission as a really big part of it. And so um, once every four years, they took an international mission trip. And so um, we went to Peru. I, I was probably my senior year. My brother went as well, and he's younger than me. Um, so we went to Peru and we worked uh, with an orphanage and worked to build a playground. And so like just that whole experience of getting into culture is, is one piece of that. But we also had amazing youth leaders. And um, so Todd Rogers, Pastor Todd Rogers um, was a big part of that. And I think what was so amazing to me was just how normal Todd was. Um, and so like we would be standing in the lunch line at some event or at some place and he would just like start rapping and like, the way he merged the secular and the religious in a way that helped us see God in the ordinary, I think was a huge part of that for me. So that was probably one of those threads um, that was really significant. But that part, that trip to Peru, um, you know, we have a covenant and there was a lot of kids. And so there were lots of rules about what you were supposed to do and what you weren't supposed to do. And um, uh, Bishop O was not on that trip, but I think his wife Shar was on that trip as one of our um uh, one of our 
um, chaperones. And, and if I remember right, at least one of their kids was on the trip too. Um, so our this is close to the end of our trip. We'd done all this amazing work and we were in Lima experiencing things. And some of our groups snuck out uh, past curfew and went to a discotheque. And oh, come on now. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, I didn't, of course, because I was such a goody two shoes. Like the rules <laughs> are the rules. Um, <laughs> so, mm -hmm. okay. So what they did though, and this, this has probably been like a huge formative part of my life. They they pulled all of us together in a room the next day and um, talked about what had happened and talked about how the covenant had been broken. And um, then instead of saying, okay, they, the rule in the covenant was like, if you, if you broke the rules, you got sent home, but we were like two days away from going home. And um, so they wanted the rest of us as the youth in that room to process what had happened and to decide what next steps would be. That's like a lot of like responsibility upon a group of people. Yeah. And um, I remember in that room, we talked about grace and we talked about forgiveness and we talked about God's mercy. And it was just this like profound experience of like part of me was like, man, I wish I had snuck out. Um, but also like just all of this sense of like where does sin come in and where did, like where is grace and forgiveness and where's Jesus and um and we decided as a group that uh, we wanted them to stay with us and we didn't want them mm -hmm. to be sent home. And, um, oh my goodness. Like when I think about formative experiences in my life, that was one of those, like the rules are broken. And yet what does community really mean when rules are broken? Um, yeah. So that's one I'd point to. Oh my, I have so many thoughts about this. <laughs> What was it for you in that in that moment? Did you feel responsibility? Mm. Did you feel, um, I know sometimes when we are aware of the rules, some of us feel like it's our job to then preserve those rules. Like we got yeah. them for a reason, right? Like, yep. what, do you recall how you were sort of feeling in that moment? You know, I think one of the things that I felt pretty profoundly is the kind of sense of if I could have done that, I would have like just that sense of like we're all human and we all make mistakes and we all have the tendency to do that. So I think my mind did not go to like, oh, these are the rules and I'm so disappointed in you. Um, it was really a sense of like our common humanity <laughs> is probably the feeling that struck me most profoundly in that moment. Um and, and so I think that was probably the thing that, that really stuck out. I, but I, like, I am such a rule follower. And so I've, I, I constantly, I think in my life have this tension between understanding the rules and maybe, maybe what I want to do is understand the rules well enough to know how to break them <laughs> and to know where the rules need to be bent in order for like fullness of life to happen. Um, yeah. So I think oh, that yeah. this this has been a core thread maybe that plays into that. I'm gonna keep this moving. I wanna stop, <laughs> but I'm gonna keep this moving. Oh, um and I love that. Um mm -hmm. and I think I've lit some of that too. Um yeah. so are you in the millennial generation? Um is that where you you land? I, I am in that, like, I don't know if it has a label, that weird little, like, Oregon Trail generation. Um, mm -hmm. and that's what some people call it. So um, I was born in 82. I'm 40, and I'm proud of it. Oh, um, yeah. It's a great decade. It's, it's such amazing. a great decade. Yeah. Oh. Um, but so, like, that that weird little group, we had internet in high school, but we didn't have Facebook in college. Like, there's this mm -hmm. little strange um, gap generation, and and I own that. So we're not Gen Xers. Um don't really identify with millennials. Um, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm two years older. And so I identify as an Xer, but most people experience me as a millennial and I don't <laughs> spend a whole lot of time trying to help them figure it out. Yeah. I just, it is what it is. Um, so here's my curiosity and why I ask. Um, there, there is this sense that people our age are kind of in the middle of, of, of a generational some might even might call it a conflict, but I, mm. I 
we we have we are old enough to have experienced at least a little bit of the good things from the traditions we've been given. Yeah. We can talk about those good things. We have some memories about those good things. But we're not so old that it those good things, that tradition is so stable that we couldn't imagine them being different. Yeah, yep. And so I'm curious as you have um, on your journey experienced ministry and people served on committees that we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, I'm curious how things like theological commitments mm-hmm. um, have you sort of living in, yes, this, I get how we got here, but, and, and some of it is the story you just shared of rules and covenants, but community and we're all human. Yeah. Um, and so it's a it's a question. This was not actually on on the interview sketch that I sent you. It's just what's coming to mind. Um, it's sort of sitting in the middle of these two really dynamic spaces. So I just love to hear you you kind of talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Of, of how you live in those those tensions. Yeah. So I think one of the things for me is that theologically being grounded and kind of Uh, A lot of people talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus, but I always have to include incarnation. And so even like when we do communion, um, I I say Christ has come among us. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ has come again because the incarnation is so much a part of that as well. And so this idea of understanding who Christ is, is always in a context and it's always among the people and it's, um, it's having the right beliefs, but it's also the right practices. And so, um, having this sense of like the deep theological commitments that have been handed down from generation to generation and wanting to fulfill those, but also knowing I've got to hand that off to, um, to people who are speaking a different language and um, living a different life and encountering different things. And so um, it's always in translation, I think is a part of that so that it can be relevant and it can actually make sense to a future generation. Um, I, I think that's part of how that that's played out. Um, and I also think part of that is we've got some really good theological concepts that get mediated through really terrible practice. And being able to have enough distance from those to unpack them and figure out what we keep and what we let go of, um, I, I think is a, is a big part of that. Um, an example that that I'm um, thinking about is um, how we talk about um, kind of the fullness of human sexuality mm-hmm. theologically, yeah. and when we talk about um, from a biblical standpoint, our Bible is way more complex than what we talk about theologically. It's like Absolutely. super diverse when you look at these relationships and yet historically we've mediated um, this kind of like black and white um, one man, one woman, sort of a, um, a story um, and handed that off missionally and evangelically um, into contexts where that was not the norm. Um, Mm. So it's interesting with global ministries, I've sometimes gotten um, feedback of, of how, um, you know, we kind of, we carried that, understanding a very kind of we took a theological truth and we packaged it into a sentence and then imposed it without conversation with the context and the culture mm-hmm. and then like really broke apart like families like polygamous families had to divor- divorce and then their kids were abandoned and like without thinking about the implications of those things and what if instead we'd had really different conversations about like, what are the real values about marriage and what does the Bible actually say about marriage? And what about, you know, um, Jacob and his two wives and the concubines? And Let's like, have some conversations. Okay. Yeah. Let, let's look at what the scriptures and what would it look like? How do we, how do we see what's happening in this context and what's good about that and what's not good about that? Um, Instead of just saying, well, this is the answer that's been handed down, packaged this way. Mm. Um, yeah. I, for a number of reasons, I appreciate that line of thinking. 
in in part because I my background is in history, and so context becomes the coloring of every historical fact. It, mm -hmm. It's not enough to know dates and names. You, you've got to know how we got there and what yeah. were the cultural assumptions that made certain decisions reasonable in those moments. And what then happened culturally to enact change. And without all of that extra stuff, you have no idea why a war broke out. You have yeah. no idea why certain laws that seem to be solid all of a sudden became a question. Like, so I just, I appreciate that. And I, and I think, um, and I'm glad you brought it up because I wanted to talk a little bit about your experience. You, you served on the board. I don't know if you, are you still serving on the board of global ministries? Still on the board. Yeah. 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 What, 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 what has that been like and how has serving um, on the, in that particular agency kind of expanded your worldview and, and thinking about leadership and even thinking about our church? Yeah. So I, I want to back up just a tiny bit because my entree into global ministries was probably actually imagine a malaria. Yes. Please talk about that. Yes. And please explain that because some of yes. us are new. And so we didn't know yes. how invested the United Methodist Church was in that project. Yeah. So, so kind of like, uh, stepping a couple of steps back, there was this partnership between the NBA and the United Methodist Church called Nothing But Nets. And our goal was to fight malaria by providing bed nets. And um, the way I talk about this story is like, that's a really great goal, right? But like, we didn't understand the context. And so we just thought we're going to buy a whole bunch of bed nets and just hand them out to people and like, problem solved, we're done, right? Um, what I love is that the United Methodist Church and our partners learned and we adapted and we realized you can't just hand out bed nets if you're not also doing education. And some places it's not nets that are a problem. They need medication and they need health system revitalization. And we can't just buy nets outside of country because then we decimate economic systems where we could have been producing them in country. Right. So like all of these layers of things to learn. So imagine no malaria came along as kind of the next version of that, um, where we took all those things that we learned, the good and the bad from nothing but nuts, and we implemented it in a completely different way. So imagine no malaria's goal was to raise $75 million to help um, fight malaria. And we implemented it largely by empowering conferences to set a goal as part of that. So, uh, I was at a meeting where Bishop Trimble was presenting this to Iowa and was kind of laying out this vision of what it could be. And I raised my hand and I said, so we've got at that time, I want to say it was 180,000 yen Methodist. And I said, so if everyone gave $10, we'd raise $1.8 million. And I got a call a couple of weeks later saying, hey, do you want to be in charge of this in Iowa? So Bishop Trimble pulled me out of a local church to become the full-time coordinator for our effort in Iowa. Um, so, Whoa. Yeah. I didn't know this piece. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. So I was our field coordinator in the state of Iowa. I had served in a congregation for um, three years and um, then for 18 months, I was our full-time coordinator for this. So um grassroots we mm. did everything across the state from bike rides to pancake suppers and fundraisers and like all of this kind of stuff we raised 2.1 million dollars in 18 months towards this so it was like Wah! yeah this is exciting um oh wow so i got to like be a part of the fundraising and communication and education piece at that point and really talk about the differences of what we've learned and how this is different then after 2016, I got invited to serve on Global Ministries. And so now I get to be a part of the agency that's actually distributing and implementing the funds that we've raised, which is incredible mm. to be a part of that work and to see um, all the stories of the lives that are being transformed and how this health center is revitalized and how these community health workers were established. And um, so amazing work. Wow. I am so grateful for Bishop Trimble's willingness to allow you to focus. Yeah. Because um, we just, we're always adding things to the plate. Yes. And everything's meaningful. Yep. 
but to be allowed to clear the plate a bit so that you could just focus on this particular work. Yeah. And it feels like that's the, that's the thing that Global Ministries gets to do mm. in general, whereas I mean, we could embed this work into some other things because there are always intersections, right? Like yes. of, of the work that happens across the globe, whether it be disaster recovery or um, environmental impact, uh, agriculture, all of these different kinds of programs. There's always, particularly, I think, at least my experience when I've been in Africa, the ways that our mission and our discipleship um, in those spaces are right next to each other. So my point is like, it, it, it could it could very well be easy to put what happens in global ministries, I think up next to something else. But I think that the, the one of the beautiful things about it, the, and, and the edge, the, the leading edge is that um, folks in that space get to really focus on how we support the church around the world. I'd love to just hear a little bit more of like what that work is and yeah. and how Global Ministries is really um, advancing the mission of Jesus in the world um, yeah. through their work. Absolutely. So one of the things that I, I think a lot of us kind of have this sense of is that the United States is the center of the world and like we go out from there in mission. And um, one of the things I quickly learned <laughs> with Global Ministries is kind of the concept of from everywhere to everywhere. And the sense that um, it is much more of a fluid dynamic. Um, how do we take what's here and bring it over there? And how do we pass these things on and to have an agency that's dedicated to those learnings um, and to be able to equip and resource around those things is so important. Um, you know, the work we do is so varied. We have um, a, a piece of our work is totally focused on um, kind of missionary work, but that that includes uh, missionaries in various contexts, but it also includes church and community workers and um, uh, folks who are, are called to do ministry in a particular context and to help uh, revitalize a congregation or, or pull together congregations for mission. Um, and so, you know, there's so many unique things. That's not really my my focus at Global Ministries, though, because we have different um, program focuses. So so missionary support is one of those. Um, and we have the, the programs that come out of that. I work most closely with UMCOR and Global Health. And so that's my, my program focus. And so internationally, um, this looks like um, disaster preparedness training and resiliency development in the United States context. It looks like conference disaster coordinators and the teams of folks that we, um, I'm trying to figure the right, right word, that we mobilize in, um, in those moments in order to respond when there's a disaster on the ground. Um, and then the global health side, which has to do with health system strengthening and maternal and child health and just like this whole slew of things and, and all of this kind of fits under this umbrella of, of global ministries. There is, um, I heard this a lot when I was doing Imagine No Malaria that um, um, in some of the, the global parts of our church, um, when you see the cross and the flame of the United Methodist Church, um, you know that there is a trusted partner who is there to help. And almost always, um, you had mentioned that piece about disciple making and, and mission together. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're planting and we're, we're building a church and a hospital and a school at the same time right? because those right. things are connected. Mm -hmm. um, and so thinking about the total health of a person um, and knowing that we can't reach them spiritually if they're starving, like physically starving. Um, and so how do you, how do you do both of those things together? I wish I had thought about like how we make this a commercial <laughs> for <laughs> global ministries and UMCOR because that, I mean, I'm just uh, so compelled by that. Mm -hmm. um, I want to take us then back to Iowa and how, you know, Iowa fits into this larger conversation of United Methodism. I'm in the Southeast and in Florida. I know how... <laughs> at least I think I know how Florida works and our, you know, sort of how, 
how we arrive at our thoughts around United Methodism and even in this moment. But I, I, I don't know a lot about the Midwest. And so I've actually been quite intrigued um, to understand more of how United Methodists in that part of our country, um, how they think about their witness and, mm. and, and the unique contribution of the North Central jurisdiction. And um, I'd even love to hear a little bit of, of what it's been like to receive um, Bishop Bigham Sai. Um, and uh, Kenitha Bigham Sai is, a, a, I'm just a huge fan of her and just stoked that she is Bishop um, and you moving to transition to be assistant to the bishop, right? So um, I tell me about Iowa Annual Conference. Um, yeah. Yeah, the Iowa Annual Conference is a really awesome place. Um, I, I mean, it, it's the place where I felt my call to ministry, right? And I couldn't imagine serving anywhere else. Um, we're really diverse as well. Um, the kind of urban congregations, rural congregations, um, we've got big churches, small churches, um, progressives and traditionalists. Iowa itself um, as a state, um, I think the United Methodist Church probably reflects the um, the state a lot in, in the sense that, um, well, at least 10 years ago, Iowa used to be a very purple state. And, um, and so that kind of like um, theological diversity, I think, is very present um, in our midst. Um, there's this phrase called Iowa nice, and it's a big part of who we are. And it's really the sense that we don't talk about the things we disagree about. And you'll be nice to someone even if you think they're terrible <laughs> or like whatever that is, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, it, it's in the South. It's, oh, bless your soul. Right. Like it's, mm -hmm. there's a parallel. Bless your heart. Mm -hmm. bless your heart. Yep, um, yep. So Iowa nice is our version of that, which can be extremely passive aggressive. Mm. So like there's this veneer of niceness that can also be, you know, there's some undertones to that um, sometimes. Um, so that's kind of our, our context. And what's really interesting about Iowa in this moment in the United Methodist Church is that um, I know there are a lot of conferences that are losing a lot of churches and right now having to respond and react with a lot of financial cuts and just like some of that work. For better or for worse, Iowa made some significant financial restructuring um, a couple of years back. Um, I think really in anticipation for all of this, we had some pretty high anxiety about finances and did a lot of realignment around some strategic priorities and um, moved from, you know, 10 years ago, eight districts to five just two years ago. Um, so we did all these cuts. And I think in part we were anticipating we might lose like 30% of our churches. Um, mm -hmm. We're not going to lose that many. Mm. Um, uh, we're like at between 10 and 12% right now um, mm -hmm. is what the kind of sentiment is. And so in some ways we now are like, well, now what do we do? And so like, where actually do we need to invest in order to support the churches that we didn't think we'd have? And like, so it's interesting to be in this moment where we're asking really different questions, I think, than some other places because of how we did some work ahead of time. Um, wow. I, I think that that's so important to get into the conversation um, that, you know, some of us, um, and I'm not talking about any particular annual conference, but some of us just hoped that it would, you know, what was coming as we, you know, saw, you know, the writing on the wall, that it would not be what it's turning out to be. And so we maybe delayed some decisions that we wish yeah. we could have gone back. And so it's interesting you're in a conference that made some some preemptive decisions and are now in this different kind of mindset that um, might even be like um, inspiring to the rest of the church. Yeah, and yeah. So, so my sense is that Iowa has received Bishop Bigham Sai um, with gratitude and excitement mm. Uh, is that my is that is that 
the truth or is it a little more mixed than that or you know and you say what you can say yeah no I think there's been genuine excitement to welcome um, Bishop Kenitha to our midst. And I think we appreciate the wealth of experience she brings about, um, about our connection and about who we are. And she's also just such a relational person. And her focus has been getting in our districts and getting to know people and sitting down with folks and really understanding who we are so that she can lead from that place. Um, which I think is just so important. Um, and in the last couple of years, um, we've, you know, we've had a little bit of, of struggle um, in, in the reality of the postponement of general conference. We had less bishops because folks retired. And so the Iowa conference, um, Bishop Lori Haller um, was serving Iowa, but then was also invited to serve the Dakotas. And so um, she was really half time in both places. Um, and mm -hmm. so, you know, we felt that as kind of a loss of leadership. I mean, just because you only have so much time, like you, um, you had talked earlier about, you know, the gift of being able to focus my time on imaginal malaria. And I think the, the thing we've done over this kind of pandemic period is we've just added things to people's plates. And um, that's just been reality. It's, you know, it's kind of crisis mode. Um, but then Bishop Lori also had an accident and um, and so had to step away. Um, she had a, a concussion and and needed to step away from ministry for a season as well. And so then we had um, an interim bishop. Bishop Kesey was amazing to come alongside of us. But just kind of that sense of we're really excited to be in a place and to welcome Bishop Kenitha and to have her leadership among us and to, to have a sense of stability that over these last kind of crisis years has not been present. And, um, you know, we're just touching the surface and just getting started, but I think we're ready um, and excited about that. I'm curious what it means for you to be the assistant to the bishop and what that means for your journey. Um, yeah. I still don't know what that means. I have so many questions about this. And, and I think actually that's that's the place I'm, I'm coming into this with lots of questions. Um, I want to be a good leader. Um, I want to understand how I can best serve the conference. And um, talking about wearing multiple hats, um, there has not been a dedicated assistant to the bishop in Iowa for like 10 years. It's been a position where that position shared multiple roles. Oh, wow. Um, and so we are we're teasing that back apart and so even like what's actually going to be my responsibility and what is someone else's like there's lots of questions and we're still figuring that out but um the bulk of what i understand my role to be is really coming alongside bishop kenitha and um being that sounding board um to really think about how do we take um the things that we're hearing and put them into practice in ministry mm. um some of my role will be clergy accountability and support. Um, so the assistant to the bishop helps manage um, uh, complaint process pieces. And, um, you know, we started out talking about like what happens when someone breaks the rules and I'm going to be the person who helps um, not make the decisions in that process, but, but guide the right people to the table and to um, shepherd people through that process. Um, and so, you know, that, the compassion and care from that early experience. I, I hope to be part of that. Um, and then so much administrative work. And um, I'm a nerd who really likes budgets. So yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a polity nerd. Um, mm -hmm. I, I'm actually preparing, I teach polity at our Iowa licensing school. Um, so like all of those administrative pieces, um, I really, I like those parts of congregational ministry. Um, I love it. Which might mean there's something wrong with me. Um, but no. no, it's not. It just means that, that like, right, that's that's some of the stuff I get to lean into yeah. in in this work. So I'm excited about that. What a gift. Yeah. Let's take a quick break. Okay. So Katie, um, it was um, 
an interesting experience being on the floor of the special session of General Conference uh, 2019 and the passing of the traditional plan. Mm. Um, and I, my, it's not just my sense. I, I've, I've become aware over these interviews and just other conversations that everyone's experience of that was specific mm. to what was happening for them, the, the relationships that they had, um, the conferences and the, and the culture of those conferences. Mm -hmm. um, there wasn't this one sort of experience and response to a very catalytic moment in our church. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm just curious, what, what was that for you, what was what was the response for you, and and even like you you were a general conference delegate for 2019, and so yeah. what you took home, um, even and just how how did that land for you? Yeah, so I I'd mentioned before Iowa is a pretty diverse place, and so our delegation in 2016 and then to 2019 was pretty split, you know, kind of progressive traditionalists and. Um, I, I, I think because of our Iowa nice, we didn't have a lot of really deep conversations as we looked at those things. Like we knew we were in different camps and we didn't know what to do with that. Um, I can very clearly remember being on the floor of general conference and, oh, this picture came up on Facebook, like those memories, right? They popped back up and mm -hmm. someone shared it like three years ago today, this was us on the floor. Um, and, um, uh, uh, we were weeping, right? So I think it was after the traditional mm -hmm. plan had passed or something like that. Um, but I actually remember sitting at my seat and um, there was a lay delegate next to me who um, is, is more conservative, more traditional than I am. And, you know, I think we all were like walking on eggshells around each other. And after that vote passed, like people started to gather and she leaned over and she said to me, it's okay if you go up there. And just that sense of like, caring for each other in that moment. And she mm. knew I needed to go be with people who were weeping with me. And um, that was a pretty profound moment. Um, and um, so I think I came home from that special session in some ways, just like, okay, now what? Um, yeah. Not really knowing exactly what that might mean. Um, I came back to my local church, which is, it's, exactly how I've described Iowa. Um, you know, not really taking a strong stand on anything and kind of having really diverse relationships. So like we have Republicans and Democrats married to each other and intergenerational. And um, But I had a lot of folks kind of fired up in that moment. And I had some folks who were ready to say, well, maybe we can't be United Methodist anymore. And I had some folks who said, I need to take a break from church for a little bit just because this like, okay, what's next? Um, was there. And, um, so I think there was kind of that sense and, um, what that was February. Um, I got to be involved in some of the work around, um, UMC next, which happened in, uh, there was a conference held in May of that year. Mm -hmm. And I think all of those folks that were kind of like, okay, what's next? <laughs> thought there's got to be something else that we can do or a way we can come together or like how do we envision a future um maybe even apart from this denomination we've come to love right i think that was some of the sentiment leading into that and um so i don't know how or why but i was invited to be a part of the planning um for that event in may and i just came away from that so energized that there's a future for the people mm -hmm. called United Methodist who believe in this big tent and that we can, um, we can, that whatever it looks like there, there's a path forward for us. Um, yeah. 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 I, I was grateful that I got to be at that UMC next event um, as well. And, and I was grateful for your leadership in that space. Grateful for the leadership of, you know, what we could call next generation leadership. Um, mm. uh, it, it, I'm, I'm grateful for our multi-generational, uh, you know, uh, representation, but really happy to see some folks who were um, 
going to inherit the mm. impact of these decisions for for decades, uh, not just a few years. So um, it was great to see you up there. And I and I I do remember being there. And one of the things that struck me was the diversity of thought and opinion yes. and commitments in that room. Yes. And and that somehow we we're gonna try to be a church together. Yeah. But it's almost like it was just Derek talking now, but it was almost like the passing of the traditional plan opened up that diversity in a way that it hadn't been sort of opened before. Yeah. And would you agree with me on that? Like Absolutely. Absolutely. And and there's this kind of reality that I have come to to notice um and lament in some ways is that it kind of it kind of seems like folks who lean more traditional can kind of gather themselves together around a common thing and like just like let's do it. Let's let's go. And when kind of folks who are more centrist or progressive get together it's like 30 different conversations and you have to figure out how to synthesize and like different commitments and, and, um, and it makes it really complicated and messy. And yet it was in the midst of that messiness that some such fruitful things came up. And um, one of the things I think, you know, we gathered there to talk about um, uh, the future of the church post general conference. Um, and so, you know, the, we're going to talk about, homosexuality. And we're going to talk about the um, incompatibility clause. You know, that was what we came to, but that was also, um, it just opened up like diversity and inclusion has to be about so much more than this conversation. Mm. Um, and, and so there was some brokenness and some pain and some like reckoning. And so, you know, UMC next, I think began to take much more seriously. What does it really mean for racial equality? What it, what are we what have we done wrong and how can we not do that for the future? And I think the conversations were enriched because it was so messy and hard. Mm. Mm. We'd love to hear sort of your thinking around the things that have happened sort of since that UMC Next gathering more broadly first, and then I'd love to hear a little bit more of sort of your experiences um, the rest of that year going into 2020. Um, I know in my conference, the annual conference uh, gathering and, uh, and elections that happened that June um, were a direct response to the passing of the traditional plan. Um, many of the folks that have been on this podcast um, they they would they would say the same thing that our conference sort of um, that the election of delegations and even resolutions passed at that such that session of annual conference were responses and they were and and it was it was it was a moment where with all of our diversity mm -hmm. centrist and progressives you know if we're going to use those categories really said but we've got to do this yeah. Yeah, that was absolutely the case in Iowa. And so, you know, we entered that annual conference session and had um, some organization both around some resolutions. We we had a resolution to disavow the traditional plan that passed by like 70 percent. Um, mm -hmm. We also organized around um, delegate elections. And Iowa has always been a place where like you don't campaign for people like people put their name in and like they stand on their own and like there's no campaigning. There's like that has never been the practice. Um, it, and, and this may, this may be my recollection. It, it kind of had felt like in previous years, like there may have been like a sense of like, these are the folks, the traditional folks are going to vote for. And this is who the, um, the more kind of progressive folks are going to vote for. But there was a, a really organized grassroots effort to um, pull together some names of folks that would, um, if we're going to disavow the traditional plan, these are folks who are going to, we're going to elect to, to change the discipline from what we just did. And, um, we, when we had our election for delegates, we elected everyone on the progressive united slate that we put together. And we elected our top three clergy delegates. The three of us were elected in the same ballot, the first ballot 
all with the same amount of people. Like it was just like, yep, mm. we're going this direction and mm. um, we are unified and like, we're gonna, we're gonna um, like, I'm trying to find the right phrasing. Um, we have a sense that this is not the church we want to be and we are committed to making it different for the future. Mm. Um, so that was just kind of like a strong impetus that really, I think, pulled us together. Um, and um, I, I was elected on that first ballot. And because I had the most experience, I became the chair of our delegation in Iowa. <laughs> and, yeah. um, um, you know, our delegation, unlike those previous delegations that were pretty split, um, is very unified in thought. We have one person um, who identifies as kind of more traditionalist um, on our entire delegation. Um, but I have always been the type of person I, I was going to be committed to having conversations anyways, but um, I've kind of been a, a bridge builder um, mm -hmm. at <laughs> 2016 general conference. Um, someone actually accused me of being an interloper because I like hang out with people who are from the other side. <laughs> and so they thought I was a spy and I was like, no, I'm just like, they're people. I know them and I want to go. So m that was one of my commitments as I, as I worked to pull together that delegation. Um, and as we planned meetings, we had a, instead of it being like me as the lead, we had a, a team of, um, three clergy and two laity who were part of our, so we planned all the meetings together, all that kind of stuff. So, um, so we've had some really good hard conversations as we prepared for 2020, which then never happened. <laughs> wow. Before we get there, I'd love to hear a little more of your experience within the UMC next world and, and, leadership and, and here's my curiosity. How does a, a, a group of, maybe not all institutionalists, but definitely individuals who have institutional credibility. And, and, and I would say that you definitely had, have and had that, but how does that group receive probably at the times late 30s, mid to late 30s, um, clergy woman um, who's got lots of experience, but is in their mid to late 30s. <laughs> <laughs> I was a young pup, not yeah. always a young pup in the room. Um, oh, I, I had such an amazing experience working with that team of folks. Um, and it always felt like I was welcomed at that table. I was pretty intimidated by some of the folks in that room. Um, at least one of them's now a bishop, um, Bishop Tom Berlin. And mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. um, who is my bishop? Yes, yes. My bishop, yep. Yes. Um, and, you know, I, I think we, um, you know, we, we utilize his books. So like we kind of put Pastor Adam Hamilton up like, kind of in rarefied space, you know, and it was weird to be gathered into this room together, but it was also like so exciting to be with lay folks and, and clergy and to realize we all had the same common purpose and how do we translate that and how do we put it um, into practice and help equip some people to, um, to hold elections in a different way, to energize them, to try to get some resources. And then ultimately, um, what we took out of that was to work on some legislation that then was submitted for the 2020 general conference and had like a really diverse group of folks working on that. Um, and I was not on the legislative writing team, but really the focus was how do we, let's be real. How do we set aside the institutional focus that was kind of uniting Methodists at 2016 um, or going into 2019 and really what we did is we said, let's do the simple plan, which was the, you know, it was the proposal from the margins that mm -hmm. uh, the kind of more institutional folks said, well, you know, this is what we're going to do. Um, and so, but really kind of learning from that and saying, okay, you know what? Yeah, let's just simplify this. Like, let's just take the pieces out. Um, if nothing else, let's do that. Um, yeah. And then also this realization that we really have to rethink what it means to be church mm. um, uh, with awareness of 
colonialism, our relationship and the equity of the U.S. and central conferences. Um, and so there's this whole piece of legislation um, that was submitted by UMC Next that really called for um, some work to be done about reimagining what it means to be church. Um, and I'm still really excited about that. Um, and so if you're a general conference delegate, like find that in, I can't remember what page it is, but mm -hmm. um, that is work that I think has to be done um, no matter what we do going forward. Um, whether it's this particular um, call or not, I think that work of reframing what it means to be a, a, a church that is worldwide, that has equi equitable relationships is really important. I really loved the way I felt like UMC Next really was not just trying to respond to something that had happened, but was really trying to get ahead hmm. of of who we who ahead to start talking about who we could be. Yeah. And I guess you would assume that because it's called UMC Next, that that's what it would do. But I don't know if that's always, like, I think we assume that that's what people, but that's really hard work. I mean, it's really it hard is. work. And and I imagine it's why instead of, like, coming up with the reimagined way of being church, we actually need, the, 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 the statement was, we need to set aside some space and time and resources to do that. Right. Which was the recommendation that came out of UMC Next. Um, and again, I'm really grateful that you were in that space. Um, it seems to me that a lot of work, a lot of work got put on hold because <sighs> of the global pandemic. Yeah. And um, so I'm, I'm gonna put this out there and then you can, you can, tell me Reverend Dawson that Derek, I don't know if I would, I would agree with that way of thinking about it. Um, I, you know, I don't believe that God caused the pandemic. Um, mm. I, I don't, um, and I'm not even like, I mean, I do believe that God works all things out for good, but not in this, like, let me take this pandemic and turn it into rainbows and butterflies. Like I, not like that, mm -hmm. like not at all, but I, mm -hmm. I do personally feel like that through the pandemic, the spirit was kind of saying to me, hey, there's a pandemic, you should pause. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I I really experienced that with UMC Next um, because I think we had so much momentum in 2019 and did a lot of work and we're trying to figure out who we were and like, are we going to hire someone? And like, we were all like, talk about wearing multiple hats. All of us were also full-time in other roles, um, put together legislation. And then there were folks um, as a part of UMC Next who were part of the protocol team. And like, you know, all of this conversation was happening. And then the pandemic hit and everything paused. Um, everything was put on hold. And my experience of UMC Next is we really kind of um, said, we really have to focus on our local churches. Um, Junius Dotson um, helped to lead us and um, he died in the midst of that season as well. And um, I don't want to say um, that the work wasn't important, but there were so many other more important things. And yeah. Yeah. Um, it really was that all kind of went to the back burner. And um, in some ways that kind of the work of UMC Next has continued to be on the back burner um, because there's so much other important stuff that's happening in front of us. But also I think what happened was folks felt like they had some energy in their local contexts and then kind of took that and ran with that. So um, that built some good relationships and connections. So like in the North central jurisdiction, we've been having lots of great conversations and um, which really helped us do some jurisdictional work together. And, and so it wasn't like we needed this like overarching organizational body to guide what we were doing. We just went and did it, um, which was also important. Katie, as you look back over your ministry to this point and the things that have happened um, around you, 
but obviously to you as well. I'm just curious what your personal takeaways of, of your journey are at this stage. Um, you know, I think um, when my mom looked at me when I was in high school and was like, oh, you haven't been confirmed. Um, I, because of the age I was, um, I didn't take for granted the United Methodist Church. Um, and when I got involved, it was because I wanted to. And um, when I even went to seminary, um, I intentionally chose not a United Methodist seminary. I went to Vanderbilt, which has some Methodist roots, some good Methodist roots. Um, well, there's also some like not so good stories about racism <laughs> and all sorts of things that could be unpacked there. But mm -hmm. um, I went because I wanted to understand what it really meant to be something else. Um, and I knew if I went and just kind of like swam on United Methodist ethos, I wouldn't understand what the differences were. So, um, I was happy to be formed in a place where I had good, strong United Methodist connections, but also a diversity of experiences kind of highlighted. And I say all that because, um, I have a very clear understanding of our theology and I can articulate how it's different from others. And I think that's been really important. And what's sustained me right now is I know, I know why it's so important to be United Methodist. Um, and so when I think about what we are going forward, um, I, I keep going back to like those core things that, that ground us, like um, our understanding of grace and um, our focus on, practical divinity and that we always hold social holiness and personal holiness like two sides of the same coin and um all of those kind of core things um it's really about how is god active in the lives of people um and how can we point to where god's already there and then also help bring out the god in them um so that's that's a big part i think of who I've been and where I'm going. What's your hope for our church? Oh, what's our hope? Um, you know, here in Iowa, we are really trying to lean pretty heavily into the idea that everyone has a place here, um, that everyone is um, has a seat at the table. Um, and I have also learned in some of these conversations, like it's not that I have the table and you're welcome at it. Like sometimes we need to build a whole new table um, and that we can all sit at together. Yes. Yes. And so there, there's some of that work as well, but um, we really have been talking about what does it mean to um, understand who we are, create space for others and um, allow people to practice their ministry according to their um, their context and their convictions. Um, and I, I keep coming back to this over and over and over again. Uh, this is a kind of Wesleyan quote. And I can't remember if this is Wesley or if he was borrowing from Augustine. I think this one, he was borrowing from Augustine. He talked about in essentials unity and non-essentials liberty and all things charity. Mm -hmm. So that sense of like, we really have to be clear about what are the things we hold in common. And then how do we have space um, for those other things? And I honestly think a big part of the division in the United Methodist Church right now um, is that it's a, it's a conversation about what's essential and what's not essential. Yeah. Because some of us say these things are essential and some of us say these things are non-essential. And that's, that's the rub of some mm. of this right now. Um, and so how do we, how do we stand firm in the essentials? Um but then how do we provide that space and that grace um, for the other things? And above all and everything, we can't like take this all out on each other um, in a way that has been happening. Um, we got to practice some better compassion and love and listening um, and relationality. Um, so that's probably a big part of what I hope for the future of our church is that um, we can we can get pretty clear about the things we hold in common, 
and we can find ways to um, to give some space for those other things, and um, but do it all in love. Um, mm. I, and you know, this relates to everything. This relates to regionalism. Like, I think the re the big conversation about regionalism that will be before this general conference is about like what are the things that we hold in common like what's our tiny tiny book of discipline going to be and then what what are the things that like it's okay if we close churches in different ways in different contexts i this is kind of off topic but i remember this conversation i was sitting in on a committee back in 2012 when i was a an alternate delegate and it was, I don't even know. I was in the local church room and they were talking about the process for closing a church. And this woman stood up and she said, my church meets under the tree. I don't understand what you're talking about. How would you close a church? And realizing it was such a U.S. context conversation. <laughs> oh my gosh, that is so mind blowing. Yeah, I mean, every, so much of what we have is so U.S. specific and doesn't relate Um but also we need to hear those stories of like my church meets under the tree. Like, yes, yes, it does. And um, mm. so I'm so glad we have these global gatherings where we hear all those different stories and experience those different contexts. But how do we create some freedom in mm. what contextual, you know, rules and discipline look like um, so we can celebrate and love each other going forward? Katie, this has been such a rich conversation. Um, <laughs> I appreciate you going with me all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> I've had so many questions, um, but I'm, I'm really grateful for your leadership and I'm really grateful um, for the ways that, that you are engaging this moment because mm -hmm. I, I think um, definitely in Iowa, but beyond that, I think that it's going to help us really embody uh, this this living in this tension of mm. well yes these are the rules but mm -hmm. we we are we are we are a something together and that is as important yes as whatever these rules apparently are yeah and so yes we close a church but we got to remember not everybody even we care more about the fact that we are church together than how yes. we close it oh, yes man. yes katie mm -hmm. thank you for joining me today i really thank appreciate you it. Thank you, Derek. I really appreciate this opportunity. And I, um, I'm so appreciative of all the work you do to kind of connect and inform people uh, in Florida and, you know, with this medium, all sorts of folks. So thank you. I love it. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Bar of the Conference is produced by the team at Wesley's Revival, a ministry of Studio Wesley. Subscribe to this show on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, or Google platforms so you don't miss a single episode. Thanks for joining us, and see you next time.